Section 13 of Americans and Others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 13 of Americans and Others by Agnes Replier. Read by Mary Schneider. The Condescension of Borrowers. Il n'est si riche qui quelquefois ne doive. Il n'est si pauvre de qui quelquefois on ne puisse emprunter. Quote from Pantagruel. I lent my umbrella, said my friend, to my cousin Maria. I was compelled to lend it to her because she could not or would not leave my house in the rain without it. I had need of that umbrella, and I tried to make it as plain as the amenities of language permitted that I expected to have it returned. Maria said superciliously that she hated to see other people's umbrellas littering the house, which gave me a gleam of hope. Two months later I found my property in the hands of her ten-year-old son, who was being marshaled with his brothers and sisters to dancing school. In the first joyful flash of recognition I cried, Oswald, that's my umbrella you're carrying, whereupon Maria said, still more superciliously than before, Oh, yes, don't you remember? As if reproaching me for my forgetfulness. You gave it to me that Saturday I lunched with you, and it rained so hard. The boys carry it to school. Where there are children, you can't have too many old umbrellas at hand. They lose them so fast. She spoke, continued my friend impressively, as if she were harboring my umbrella from pure kindness, and because she did not like to wound my feelings by sending it back to me. She made a virtue of giving it shelter. This is the arrogance which places the borrower, as Charles Lamb discovered long ago, among the great ones of the earth, among those whom their brethren serve. Lamb loved to contrast the instinctive sovereignty, the frank and open bearing of the man who borrows, with the lean and suspicious aspect of the man who lends. He stood lost in admiration before the great borrowers of the world, Alcibiades, Falstaff, Steele, and Sheridan, an incomparable quartet, to which might be added the shining names of William Godwin and Lee Hunt. All the characteristic qualities of the class were united indeed in Lee Hunt, as in no other single representative. Sheridan was an unrivaled companion could talk seven hours without making even byron yawn steele was the most lovable of spendthrifts lending to these men was but a form of investment they paid in a coinage of their own but lee hunt combined in the happiest manner a readiness to extract favors with a confirmed habit of never acknowledging the smallest obligation for them he is a perfect example of the condescending borrower of the man who permits his friends as a pleasure to themselves to relieve his necessities and who knows nothing of gratitude or loyalty it would be interesting to calculate the amount of money which hunt's friends and acquaintances contributed to his support in life shelley gave him at one time fourteen hundred pounds an amount which the poet could ill spare and when he had no more to give, wrote in misery of spirit to Byron, begging a loan for his friend, and promising to repay it, as he feels tolerably sure that Hunt never will. Byron, generous at first, wearied after a time of his position in Hunt's commissariat. It was like pulling a man out of a river, he wrote to Moore, only to see him jump in again. 
and coldly withdrew his withdrawal occasioned inconvenience and has been sharply criticized hunt says sir leslie stephen loved a cheerful giver and byron's obvious reluctance struck him as being in bad taste his biographers one and all have sympathized with this point of view even mr frederick locker from whom one would have expected a different verdict has recorded his conviction that hunt had probably been sorely tried by byron it is characteristic of the preordained borrower of the man who simply fulfills his destiny in life that not his obligations only but his anxieties and mortifications are shouldered by other men hunt was carefree and light-hearted but there is a note akin to anguish in shelley's petition to byron and in his shamefaced admission that he is himself too poor to relieve his friend's necessities the correspondence of william godwin's eminent contemporaries teem with projects to alleviate godwin's needs his debts were everybody's affair but his own sir james mackintosh wrote to rogers in the autumn of eighteen fifteen suggesting that byron might be the proper person to pay them rogers enchanted with the idea wrote to byron proposing that the purchase money of the siege of corinth be devoted to this good purpose byron with less enthusiasm but resigned wrote to murray directing him to forward the six hundred pounds to godwin and murray having always the courage of his convictions wrote back flatly refusing to do anything of the kind in the end byron used the money to pay his own debts thereby disgusting everybody but his creditors six years later however we find him contributing to a fund which tireless philanthropists were raising for godwin's relief on this occasion all men of letters poor as well as rich were pressed into active service even lamb who had nothing of his own wrote to the painter hayden who had not a penny in the world and begged him to beg mrs Couts to pay godwin's rent he also confessed that he had sent a very respectful letter on behalf of the rent to sir walter scott and he explained naively that godwin did not concern himself personally in the matter because he left all to his committee a peaceful thing to do but how did godwin come to have a committee to raise money for him when other poor devils had to raise it for themselves or do without he was not well beloved on the contrary he bored all whom he did not affront he was not grateful on the contrary he held gratitude to be a vice as tending to make men grossly partial to those who have befriended them his condescension kept pace with his demands after his daughter's flight with shelley he expressed his just resentment by refusing to accept shelley's check for a thousand pounds unless it were made payable to a third party unless he could have the money without the formality of an acceptance like the great lords of picardy who had the right of credit from their loyal subjects godwin claimed his dues from every chance acquaintance crab robinson introduced him one evening to a gentleman named ruff the next day both godwin and ruff called upon their host each man expressing his regard for the other and each asking robinson if he thought the other would be a likely person to lend him fifty pounds 
there are critics who hold that hayden excelled all other borrowers known to fame but his is not a career upon which an admirer of the art can look with pleasure hayden's debts hunted him like hounds and he pursued borrowing as a means of livelihood more lucrative than painting pictures which nobody would buy it was only because no third avocation presented itself as a possibility he is not to be compared for a moment with a true expert like sheridan who borrowed for borrowing's sake and without any sordid motive connected with rents or butcher's bills hayden would indeed part with his money as readily as if it belonged to him he would hear an inward voice in church urging him to give his last sovereign and having obeyed this voice with as pure a feeling as ever animated a human heart he had no resource but immediately to borrow another it would have been well for him if he could have followed on such occasions the memorable example of lady cook who was so impressed by a begging sermon that she borrowed a sovereign from sydney smith to put in the offertory and the gold once between her fingers found herself equally unable to give it or to return it so went home a pound richer for her charitable impulse hayden too would rob peter to pay paul and rob paul without paying peter but it was all after an intricate and troubled fashion of his own on one occasion he borrowed ten pounds from webb seven pounds he used to satisfy another creditor from whom on the strength of this payment he borrowed ten pounds more to meet an impending bill it sounds like a particularly confusing game but it was a game played in dead earnest and without the humorous touch which makes the charm of lady cook's or of sheridan's methods hayden would have been deeply grateful to his benefactors had he not always stood in need of favors to come sheridan might perchance have been grateful could he have remembered who his benefactors were he laid the world under tribute and because he had an aversion to opening his mail an aversion with which it is impossible not to sympathize he frequently made no use of the tribute when it was paid moore tells us that james wesley once saw among a pile of papers on sheridan's desk an unopened letter of his own containing a ten-pound note which he had lent sheridan some weeks before wesley quietly took possession of the letter and the money thereby raising a delicate and as yet unsettled question of morality had he a right to those ten pounds because they had once been his or were they not rather sheridan's property destined in the natural and proper order of things never to be returned yet men even men of letters have been known to pay their debts and to restore borrowed property moore paid lord lansdowne every penny of the generous sum advanced by that nobleman after the defalcation of moore's deputy in bermuda dr johnson paid back ten pounds after a lapse of twenty years a pleasant shock to the lender and on his deathbed having fewer sins than most of us to recall begged sir joshua reynolds to forgive him a trifling loan it was the too honest return of a pair of borrowed sheets unwashed which first chilled pope's friendship with lady mary wortley montague that excellent gossip miss letitia matilda hawkins who stands responsible for this anecdote lamented all her life that her father sir john hawkins could never remember which of the friends borrowed and which lent the offending sheets 
but it is a point easily settled in our minds pope was probably the last man in christendom to have been guilty of such a misdemeanor and lady mary was certainly the last woman in christendom to have been affronted by it like dr johnson she had no passion for clean linen coleridge though he went through life leaning his inert weight on other men's shoulders did remember in some mysterious fashion to return the books he borrowed enriched often as lamb proudly records with marginal notes which tripled their value his conduct in this regard was all the more praiseworthy inasmuch as the cobweb statutes which define books as personal property have never met with literal acceptance lamb's theory that books belong with the highest priority to those who understand them best a theory often advanced in defense of depredations which lamb would have scorned to commit was popular before the lamentable invention of printing the library of lucullus was we are told open to all and it would be interesting to know how many precious manuscripts remained ultimately in the great patrician's villa richard heber that most princely of collectors so well understood the perils of his position that he met them bravely by buying three copies of every book one for show one for use and one for the service of his friends the position of the show book seems rather melancholy but perhaps in time it replaced the borrowed volume heber's generosity has been nobly praised by scott who contrasts the hard-heartedness of other bibliophiles those grippled niggards who preferred holding on to their treasures with his friend's careless liberality Quote, thy volumes open as thy heart delight amusement science art to every ear and eye impart yet who of all who thus employ them can like the owner's self enjoy them End quote the gripple niggards might have pleaded feebly on their own behalf that they could not all afford to spend like heber a hundred thousand pounds on the purchase of books and that an occasional reluctance to part with some hard-earned hard-won volume might be pardonable in one who could not hope to replace it lamb's books were the shabbiest in christendom yet how keen was his pang when charles kemble carried off the letters of that princely woman the thrice noble margaret newcastle an illustrious folio which he well knew kemble would never read how bitterly he bewailed his rashness in extolling the beauties of sir thomas brown's urn burial to a guest who was so moved by this eloquence that he promptly borrowed the volume but so sighed lamb have i known a foolish lover to praise his mistress in the presence of a rival more qualified to carry her off than himself johnson cherished a dim conviction that because he read and garrick did not the proper place for garrick's books was on his johnson's bookshelves a point which would never be settled between the two friends and which came near to wrecking their friendship garrick loved books with the chilly yet imperative love of the collector johnson loved them as he loved his soul garrick took pride in their sumptuousness in their immaculate virginal splendor johnson gathered them to his heart with scant regard for outward magnificence for the glories of calf and vellum garrick bought books johnson borrowed them each considered that he had a prior right to the objects of his legitimate affection 
we looking back with softened hearts are fain to think that we should have held our volumes doubly dear if they had lain for a time by johnson's humble hearth if he had poured over them at three o'clock in the morning and had left sundry tokens grease spots and spatters of snuff upon many a spotless page but it is hardly fair to censure garrick for not dilating with these emotions johnson's habit of flinging the volumes which displeased him into remote and dusty corners of the room was ill calculated to inspire confidence and his powers of procrastination were never more marked than in the matter of restoring borrowed books we know from craddock's memoirs how that gentleman having induced lord harborough to lend him a superb volume of manuscripts containing the poems of james i proceeded to relend this priceless treasure to johnson when it was not returned as of course it was not he wrote an urgent letter and heard to his dismay that johnson was not only unable to find the book but that he could not remember having ever received it the despairing craddock applied to all his friends for help and george stevens who had a useful habit of looking about him suggested that a sealed packet which he had several times observed lying under johnson's ponderous inkstand might possibly contain the lost manuscript even with this ray of hope for guidance it never seemed to occur to any one to storm johnson's fortress and rescue the imprisoned volume but after the doctor's death two years later craddock made a formal application to the executors and lord harborough's property was discovered under the inkstand unopened unread and consequently as by a happy miracle uninjured such an incident must needs win pardon for garrick's churlishness in defending his possessions the history of book collecting says a caustic critic is a history relieved but rarely by acts of pure and undiluted unselfishness this is true but are there not virtues so heroic that plain human nature can ill aspire to compass them there is something piteous in the futile efforts of reluctant lenders to save their property from depredation they place their reliance upon artless devices which never yet were known to stay the marauder's hand they have their names and addresses engraved on foolish little plates which riveted to their umbrellas will they think suffice to ensure the safety of these useful articles as well might the border farmer have engraved his name and address on the collars of his grazing herds in the hope that the reaver would respect this symbol of authority the history of book-plates is largely the history of borrower versus lender the orderly mind is wont to believe that a distinctive mark irrevocably attached to every volume will ensure permanent possession mr goss for example has expressed a touching faith in the efficacy of the book-plate he has but to explain that he makes it a rule never to lend a volume thus decorated and the would-be borrower bows to this rule as to a decree of fate to have a book-plate he joyfully observes gives a collector great serenity and confidence is it possible that the world has grown virtuous without our observing it can it be that the old stalwart race of book-borrowers those spoilers of the symmetry of shelves are foiled by so childish an expedient imagine dr johnson daunted by a scrap of pasted paper 
or coleridge who seldom went through the formality of asking leave but borrowed armfuls of books in the absence of their legitimate owners how are we to account for the presence of book plates quite a pretty collection at times on the shelves of men who possess no such toys of their own when i was a girl i had access to a small and well-chosen library not greatly exceeding montaigne's fourscore volumes each book enriched with an appropriate device of scaly dragon guarding the apples of hesperides beneath the dragon was the motto johnsonian in form if not in substance honor and obligation demand the prompt return of borrowed books these words ate into my innocent soul and lent a pang to the sweetness of possession doubts as to the exact nature of prompt return made me painfully uncertain as to whether a month a week or a day were the limit which honor and obligation had set for me but other and older borrowers were less sensitive and i have reason to believe that books being a rarity in that little southern town most of the volumes were eventually absorbed by the gaping shelves of neighbors perhaps even now their generous owner long since dead these worn copies of boswell of elia of herrick and more may still stand forgotten in dark and dusty corners like gems that magpies hide it is vain to struggle with fate with the elements and with the borrower it is folly to claim immunity from a fundamental law to boast of our brief exemption from the common lot lend therefore cheerfully o man ordained to lend when thou seest the proper authority coming meet it smilingly as it were halfway resistance to an appointed force is but a futile waste of strength that's the end of section 13.